Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Kind Parenting Company podcast. I'm Jackie Ward. And I'm Kylie Camps. Join us as we explore topics and share evidence-based information, all while honoring our commitment to kind parenting practices. This is a safe space for conversation and reflections on parenting and motherhood, designed to best support you in raising your little loves and to be the parent you want to be. We are so excited that you're here. Let's jump into today's episode. Before I tell you about today's episode and our guest and share a little bit of context surrounding this episode, I am just going to let you know that right now, if you are listening to this episode in real time, you can take advantage of the Kind Parenting Company massive extension of the Black Friday sale, which we are going to have stay live all Monday. So this offer is only valid if you're listening right now in real time. It's Monday. We have 50% off programs. It is the 29th of November. Tomorrow at 7am, this code is going to shut off automatically and it will not be extended. So for those of you who have perhaps missed our emails, we've sent a few out because Friday was Black Friday, Cyber Monday, 50% off programs. That's huge. Use the code BLACK50. So BLACK, all in capitals, 50, BLACK50, and it will take 50% off all of our Kind Parenting Company programs. That means with the sleep programs, you have unlimited access to audio files and video tutorials. The audio files are my favorite element of all of our KPC programs, because if you enjoy a podcast and fingers crossed you do because you're here, Um, that means that you don't even necessarily need to sit and read anything because I get it. I had two newborns at once. I completely understand being time poor and wanting to achieve results with your children, but not having the time and space to actually sit down and go through chapters and chapters and chapters of content. So the audio files mean you can just have a quick scan, look at the topic, see what applies to you. Do you need a little bit of um, food for thought when it comes to dummies? Or is it settling? Is it catnaps? Is it toddler behavior? Is it hitting? Is it communication frustration? Is it introducing a new sibling into the family? We have you covered. So you can just flick through the contents table, select what you want to listen to and pop it on. It's like having a podcast on demand on the topics you are interested in. Now with the Kind Parenting Company, we pride ourselves on evidence-based and kind parenting techniques. You also have complete two-week free access to our forums and in those forums you are going to find live chats from a variety of experts and you can also benefit from the support and guidance from our operations manager and Jackie who both spend time in the forums really really looking after you so that code is live now black 
for Black Friday. For Cyber Monday, it's going to expire tomorrow on the 30th of November. Get in quick, team. I will put the details in the show notes as well for you. All right, today's episode. Today's podcast is a conversation with Dr. Christy Goodwin. Christy is a digital well-being and productivity researcher, speaker, author, consultant, and media commentator with a huge passion for helping families to really navigate screens. And the thing that I love about Christy, and there are many things that I really enjoy speaking with Christy about, but I think the thing that I love the most is that she really does come at screen times and phones and online gaming and everything like that from a very realistic perspective. She is not evangelical about there should absolutely be no screens and she's also not throw your hands up in the air and just let screens happen all the time. I think she sits in a very realistic and educated position and she's so wonderful at explaining why she believes what she believes to parents because it goes deeper than just what she believes and what she does with her own family. As I said, it's all evidence-based, which just speaks to my soul. So Dr. Christy and I chat about when and if and how it could be appropriate to give your son or daughter a mobile phone and the sorts of things that you really need to know when that is happening. We talk about our attachment and our own relationship to our own screens and how that impacts our children as well. I think this is a conversation that will benefit a lot of people, regardless of whether or not you are a parent. If you know someone who has kids or may go on to have kids, this is a conversation worth listening to because it's going to be able to give you some really, I think insightful food for thought when it comes to screens because the water that we live in the world that we live in is so screen dominated more than ever and it's only going to get more so and so I loved speaking with Christy it gave me a lot to reflect on and I hope you enjoy this episode definitely check out the show notes as well because there are some resources that Dr. Christy has kindly provided for us and you will also find links so that you can jump over and see more and hear more from Christy as well. And one last little mini ask before we get stuck into my conversation with Dr. Christy. If you are enjoying the KPC podcast, and I really hope that you are, it is a brand new venture for us, not the not the KPC, we've had that for years, but the podcast element to it. And it would honestly mean so much to me and to Jackie as well. If you take a screenshot of this episode, pop it up on your Instagram stories, tell your friends about this podcast. We would love to have more of you come over and join us. And yeah, I would just be so, so grateful if you can take 10 seconds to share the love on this KPC episode and this podcast. Thank you. And let's get stuck into my conversation with Dr. Christy Goodwin talking all things screens. Christy, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with me. I've been so looking forward to having another chat with you. 
Great to be here, thanks to the virtual marvellous technologies that we now have at our disposal. I know, I know. Thank goodness. Now, before we dive into this topic, which is a really big and important topic, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about who you are and what it is that you do. So I'm a digital wellbeing researcher, speaker and author, and I am a mum to three boys. Um, and yes, I have certainly endured my share of techno tantrums. Um, I take the research and science about how our brains and bodies operate in the digital landscape. And I translate that into practical and realistic advice for parents of children and teens, or as I refer to them, screenagers, um, and also about how technology is impacting on us as adults, because none of us are immune to the digital pool. Um, so I share that science um, and brain-based information so that we can all thrive in this digital world without for a moment suggesting that we digitally amputate our kids, ban the iPhone, or unplug the gaming console. Yeah, so you must be super busy right now with everyone kind of coming out of lockdown, hopefully. Um, I can imagine that so many families are like, holy moly, we now need to really decrease our screen time. Yes, I call it weaning the screen. I think um, most of us during the pandemic, um, and the research certainly confirms this, and I know in our household, we certainly lowered the bar when it came to screen time um, with kids. And the reality is that many kids have developed some unhealthy relationships and behaviours with technology. And now that we're hopefully reverting to a new normal, it's the time where we need to start um, reorienting and um, harnessing some more healthy boundaries around technology without suggesting that they need to avoid it altogether, but just trying to um, recalibrate um, so that they're certainly using technology, but using it in ways that will support rather than stifle their well-being and development. Mm, and I love that. And that's one of the reasons I'm so drawn to your work, Christy, is that you are really realistic. You know, I, I find that often when it comes to screens, it can be quite divisive in terms of sometimes people are very anti-screens, like no, they absolutely need to be outside all the time and that's quite idealistic and you know that's you can have that on one hand and then on the other hand you kind of have people go well this is just the world that we're in now so let them have screens as much as possible whereas I find with you you do have that really realistic blend of going you know what this is the water we're swimming in <laughs> we, we live in a world where screens matter but the human and the individual matters first and foremost. So mm. I'm really drawn to your work and I'm grateful that you're in this space. Thank you. And I totally agree. It is such a polarizing topic. Um, as you suggested, parents sit on one end of the continuum. And so what I try and do is share science-backed information. Um, I am a self-confessed nerd and I love diving in and digesting the research and science. Love evidence-based. <laughs> thank you. Well, it's hard to argue with evidence. When yeah. you say this is what the science, this is what the research is telling us, let's use this as a platform to make educated decisions. Then there's no parent shaming. Um, um, there's no, I call it techno guilt. Um, it, it's about saying this is what we know. And I live by Mayor Angelo saying that when you know better, you do better. You do better. So hopefully um, giving parents, and I think there's a whole lot of misinformation, uh, myths and misnomers about screen time. And that's actually what started me on this journey. I had a, an early childhood um, nurse when I took my eldest son for his six-month developmental check, tell me that he should be tapping, swiping and pinching on an iPad at six months of age. Good Lord. She didn't know what I did for work. I actually thought it was one of those candid camera moments. And 
I especially in the in the early in the early months of becoming a mum, you're like, is is she trolling me? (laughs) Yes. Well, I was sleep deprived and I'd made the rookie error of taking the nine a.m. appointment and hadn't been caffeinated, so I was Mm -hmm. just delirious and I just could not believe we had a health professional saying, you know, she told me he should be on an iPad and he should be watching Baby Einstein DVDs every day, and that was a real catalyst for me to say, hang on, that's grossly incorrect information and advice. Um, and so that's what spurred me on. I ironically put him down for his, his nap that day. He did one of those unusual four-hour naps, the ones where you go in and check that they're breathing and then you commando crawl out. And in his nap time, I was so outraged that ironically I started a social media campaign that babies need laps, not apps. It went viral. Um, and because he had such a long nap, I thought I'm going to write a book about this topic. I did not write the book in his nap, but it was the beginning, <laughs> the genesis of saying, look, we really need to give parents research-based information so we can make educated decisions rather than giving them myths and misinformation and philosophical arguments. So that's really what I try to do, again, because I like the science and it's hard to argue with it. Totally. And I'm sitting here nodding because when my two were babies and even when they were toddlers, I often spoke about this on social media where I said, you know what, we've made a decision that the boys are not going to have screen time before the age of two because the evidence suggested that it's so much more important for their cognitive function and their development to not be staring at a screen because they need that dimension and that they would in fact, you know, really benefit from just staring at a black shape against a white wall more than they would a screen when they were babies. And people came for me. I had people really, really angry that I was saying that because I guess, you know, my interpretation of them kind of coming for me was that they thought I was pointing the finger at them and saying, you're doing it wrong if you put your baby in front of the wiggles. And that's that wasn't my point. My point was just there is evidence out there. There's science that backs up the fact, as you said, babies need laps, not apps. Yeah. And the research on the brain actually tells us that infants cannot make meaning from a 2D screen until they're somewhere around 36 months. So whilst they may look at a screen, I mean, you only need to look at a newborn baby when the TV's on and they eventually learn to turn their head to try and watch it, not because they're learning from it, um, because it's the orienting reflex. And so this is where um, parents are often uh, given misinformation, told that Baby Einstein DVDs and educational apps and, and programs specifically for young kids are helpful when the research actually tells us that the brain cannot make meaning from that 2D screen until they're about three. So yes, they might like looking at it, but it's not necessarily a learning or enriching experience. Yes. And an example I can recall was about a ball being thrown, you know, that a baby or a toddler can't make sense that if they see in one frame a hand with a ball and then in the next frame a ball in the sky they're not connecting the dots that that ball's been thrown as they might if they saw it happen in real life. That's right. They call that the video deficit because when this research was done, we only had videos, but it's held true to today that even with more interactive media like tablets and touchscreens that we've now got, it really tells us that whilst children may be engaged with it, they're not necessarily learning from it until at least three years of age. So it's not to say that we need to, to ban screens, but just be really mindful that if your kids are using screens, particularly in those very early years, it may not actually be the learning experience that has been marketed to you in all of the collateral that goes with a lot of techno toys and products for really young kids. It's all so interesting. Now, something that you mentioned was shame. 
And I think that we know enough now because there are so many brilliant researchers out there specifically talking and focusing on shame, but we know that as parents when we or as humans, when we feel shame about something, it's best to shine a light on it and get more information and bring it to the surface. And I think that it's the same with technology. Like, you know, we kind of have a little bit of shame over how much our kids might be using technology or shame about our opinions of technology or whatever it might be. But when we actually dive in and bring it to the surface and have a look at what the facts are and what we can do and what's within our control, it's going to be so helpful for us as parents in guiding our kids when it comes to phones and tablets and devices. And specifically, I really wanted to speak with you about introducing phones to Mm -hmm. children and how parents deal with their own conflicting emotions and their, you know, their, their want to be able to have their child to be contactable and to feel safe, but also the want and the desire to have their child be resourceful and reliant and all of these things. Like where do we begin? What age does a child need or deserve a phone? (laughs) such a huge and very common digital dilemma that so many parents are grappling with. And I will acknowledge this is something that we're grappling with as a family. Our eldest son is 11 and he is convinced that he's the only boy in all of Australia that doesn't have his own mobile phone at this point in time. So to answer that that million dollar question is it's actually impossible to prescribe an exact chronological age when kids are ready to have a smartphone. Um, Research tells us now that most children have access to their own smartphone around 11 years of age. Um, So the the age creep is definitely declining and we know children are getting access to mobile devices at younger and younger ages. The reason that it's so hard to prescribe an exact age is because when you are giving your children a phone, you're not just giving them a phone. What you are now giving them if they get a smartphone is access to a camera, a video camera, a still camera, access to the internet, access to streaming services and a plethora of social media apps. And so we have to be really cognizant about whether our children are psychologically ready to deal with both the responsibility of having a phone. You know, if your child's still losing their school lunchbox and their blazer, how are they going to go with a a device that's worth several hundred dollars? So responsibility is one factor. Then the other side of, of responsibility is how are they going to cope with the incessant demands, I call them the digital demands, of having a smartphone? You know, whether they're chatting with their friends, part of group chats, WhatsApp groups, um, whether they are introduced to social media. Um, I know many parents say they gave their child a phone with the intention of it just being a device to connect, to communicate with. So they could call them if there were any changes to after-school plans or to, to find out where they were on the weekend. But very quickly kids end up down the digital rabbit hole and they're making, you know, requests to have social media access or other other tools and gaming platforms on this device. So it's really hard to prescribe that exact age. What I say to parents is I am yet, I speak to thousands of parents throughout the country every year, I'm yet to meet a parent who says I really regret holding off on giving my child a phone. Oh, that's fascinating. I I would have expected it the other way. No, conclusively from parents is saying, I really regret giving them the phone as early as I did. Oh, yeah, sorry, I misunderstood. I wish I held off. 
Gotcha. Yeah, no, parents are saying because it becomes that digital rabbit hole, it becomes a really easy slippery slope. And the problem is, I mean, we look at adults, we are tethered to technology. We find it hard to stop the scroll and, and shut the lid on the laptop. Our children and their developing brains don't have the brain architecture to self-regulate their behaviour. So this can become such a huge problem and lead to a whole raft of other issues when we prematurely dunk them in the digital stream. So I say to parents, hold off as long as possible. If your eight-year-old son came home from school one day and said, mum, can I have the keys to the car so I can go and do burnouts? Our answer would be no. Your 11-year-old daughter comes home and says, dad, how about a shot of tequila with dinner tonight? Our answer would be no. And we have to put those same boundaries in place with our kids. I think boundaries are a bit like vegetables. Our kids need them. They don't necessarily want them. Um, yeah. And when it comes to the digital space, being, I often say, parents, we've got to be the pilot, not the passenger of the digital plane. It's, so we have to come up with those limits. It's so true because just even as you were speaking, then I was thinking back to getting my own first phone and I can still see it. It was like this little, I think it was called a trium. It's like a little jelly bean type mm-hmm. phone. And all I could do was text and call. It's such a different experience now because as you said, a phone is is a gateway right now. And it's a two-way street. It's not just what they're putting out into the universe, which can be scary, but it's also what's coming in at them. And yes, as an adult, as a 34-year-old woman, I find it hard to manage the bids for my attention. You know, I have to have quite strict boundaries with my phone, like no notifications from social media, because otherwise it would always be calling to me. And I've got a level of awareness that an 11-year-old, a 15-year-old, probably even a 25-year-old isn't necessarily going to have. So it's so much more loaded than just a device for connection with mum and dad, isn't it? It is. And the way we know the brain is is wired, when our kids are on their digital devices, they're often getting hits of dopamine. So when a friend writes back or gives them an emoji to a funny comment they posted, whether they get some social media vanity metrics by people sharing or liking or commenting on their posts, what this does is give a hit of dopamine. And that neurotransmitter drives more and more of that behaviour. And that's when it can become problematic. Now, the other issue is that when they get, all of us, adults included, when we get a little hit of dopamine, not only does it continue to drive that behaviour, but that hit of dopamine floods our prefrontal cortex. And this is the part of the brain that regulates our behaviour, that says, you know, two hours on TikTok is enough, turn it off and go and do your trigonometry homework. That does not work when you're getting hits of dopamine. I don't know about you, Kylie, but sometimes I say to myself at night, I'm going to have one square of dark chocolate, 70% <laughs> antioxidant variety that's supposed to be good for my heart It's health. basically a health food. Isn't it? And it tastes so good. And before you know it, one square becomes two squares, becomes four squares because that dopamine is overriding that, that impulse control centre of the brain. And this is what's happening with our kids coupled with the fact that the technologies they use, particularly their leisure-based technologies on smartphones, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, WhatsApp, many young people are using Discord. These platforms use a whole lot of very, very sneaky, persuasive design techniques. You know, the fact that the notification bubble is red. Red is a psychological trigger for urgency and importance. The fact that push notifications come to you, trick you into thinking that they're urgent and important. 
And it's the same with gaming as well, isn't it? Yeah, and with gaming it's even more amplified because with all of these platforms we get something called intermittent variable rewards. So you never know when you're going to go into TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat and see something interesting. And so it's that unpredictable reward ratio that gets us hooked into constantly checking and constantly using it. And so this is why kids and us, I will acknowledge this is something I struggle with, in the online world we enter something called the state of insufficiency. The online world is a bottomless bowl. There's no stopping cues. It's like the beautiful infinity pools that we see. They just go on and on and on. And so our young kids, again, because their brain isn't fully developed, find this really hard to wrestle against. Well, that's like I remember, and I can't remember whether it was in a documentary or an article I was reading about the gamification of social media and how it is. It's designed to be very similar to a whatchamacallit, a pokies machine, yeah, where you're getting that dopamine hit. On that, the way you refresh social media. That's the one, the refreshing, yes. Your screen, and that is intentional. It's not because you have slow Wi-Fi connection. The pause is actually a deliberate design technique because it builds up a sense of anticipation. There's a sense of adrenaline. You're waiting to see what new content will come in. And as a human, our brain is biologically wired for novelty. We're always on the hunt for new and interesting things. Seeking novelty is what helped keep us safe and helped us evolve. So we've tapped into some of these biological drivers. And and the fact that when we are online, we are usually using it to connect, whether it's playing multiplayer video games, chatting with our friends, watching TikTok, um, sending someone a DM, that taps into our most fundamental basic human psychological driver and that's the need for relational connection. And just like a pokies machine, it's addictive. Yes, Our brain wants more of it and it's happening so quick because that pause when you're refreshing, I mean, that wouldn't even be a full second, would it? Like it's happening so fast. So I guess you're also um, building up this kind of or perhaps decreasing your resistance, you know, like you're like expecting it to be so quick. Yes. And again, reinforces that um, compelling addictive behavior that we're seeing in many parents, sorry, many kids, and that parents are saying, you know, I am really concerned about how te- I often say tethered to technology um, our, our kids are because they find it hard to switch off not because they're trying to be problematic and difficult because the technology has been deliberately engineered to hijack and then hold their attention we struggle imagine your young person with their developing brain how much this would be challenging for them and I think that documentary the social dilemma really explained this so well. I remember when I saw that and I've watched it twice now, but just sitting there watching this documentary and the way it explains how apps are designed to really be almost like pulling the puppet strings. It's like, oh, your phone knows that you haven't picked it up, that you haven't looked at something. So they're going to send you a notification that they know will pique your interest it's not just a case of willpower of being like, don't look at your phone because you're up against such intelligence, such intelligence that is like designed to hack your attention and your, I guess your physiology as well, because it's like, okay, we know that you want connection. Okay. We know that you want dopamine. Okay. We know how to get you addicted. We're going to use all of our intelligence to engineer 
exactly that. Like we're going to pull you into this vortex. And as you said, it's endless. It really is. And this is why it's so problematic for our young people, because having a phone is part of your social capital. Being connected to your peer group more than your family group is a natural rite of passage. This has always been the case. What What age does that sort of start? Well, it it usually starts in the preteen years. It is a natural biological development for children to shift from predominantly being part of the family unit to gravitating more towards their peer group. This has always been the case. This is now amplified in the digital context when you can literally be tethered and connected to your peer group 24-7. And this is having, you know, huge cascading consequences. One of the really big issues that we're facing at the moment is children and adolescents who are chronically sleep deprived because of their digital habits. Kids that are sending messages at all hours of the night and early hours of the morning. Um, Kids that are not getting adequate amounts of sleep because they are on devices. And we know that the blue light from devices not only delays the onset of their sleep, but once they are finally asleep, and this applies to us too as adults, if we've been on a blue lit device in the 60 minutes before we fall asleep, Our deep and our REM sleep, which are the restorative stages of our sleep, it's when memory consolidation occurs, they are significantly shorter. So not only are many young people not getting the right amount of sleep, but they're getting poor quality of sleep. And this is why we're seeing this phenomenon called tired and wired um, that many young people, including adults, are also experiencing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mm. And so I guess back to if we're introducing a phone, I I found it interesting that you said the age 11 because just in a couple of conversations I've had before, like in preparation for this chat with you today, 11 seems to be the age that most people said to me, my son, my daughter is hounding me for a phone. So say there is something in the age of 11. If you were introducing a phone, I I imagine you'd want to put boundaries in place such as no social media on that phone, um, not taking that phone into your bedroom at night. Like what other things would you put into place if a child as young as 11 or 12 was using a phone because mum and dad felt that it was a great idea because he or she is catching a bus or whatever it might be? Yes. So really important, if you're that pilot of the digital plane, you need to come up with boundaries with your child, not on them, giving them a phone contract, you know, whether or maybe it's an iPad or whatever digital device, presenting them with an agreement will not work if they haven't had buy-in. And I work with lots of kids and I am astounded by how sophisticated their knowledge is about this particular topic. So what I suggest parents do is sit down with your child before the device is purchased, if you can, or before you're going to hand it over to them and establish what your boundaries are. Now, a lot of parents have boundaries around how much time their kids are going to spend with technology, and that is important. But 
it's not the most important conversation piece. What we also have to have limits around, I believe, that the bigger question is what? What are they going to be doing on that device? You know, are you going to allow them to have social media? And again, most social media platforms have a legal requirement that young people are 13 years of age to use the platform, not because that's when they're psychologically ready, but that's when it is legal for tech companies to mine data from miners. Um, So really establish what it is that they're going to do. Um, When are they going to use it? As we've identified before, sleep and first thing in the morning can really activate their limbic or their their stress brain. Um, So avoiding those two times of the day. Um, Having boundaries around where. Where are the no-go tech zones in your house? You know, your daughter is unlikely to be sending nudes if she's using the phone on the couch with you or at the kitchen bench, much more likely to be doing it in her bedroom or the bathroom. So articulate where those no-go zones are. Um, Have boundaries around who she'll use the device with um, and also um, uh, for how long. So establishing all of those boundaries together with your child. The next thing we have to do is, and I call these the three Bs, so we've established boundaries The second B is that we have to make sure that their phone use isn't eroding their basic needs. Really important. Are they getting enough sleep? Are they getting enough physical activity? Are they interacting with real people? Are they playing? So making sure that those basic needs aren't displaced. And the third B is making sure that they are bored from time to time. Mm. I think we have to be so careful with young people constantly seeking solace in their phones when they're experiencing big emotions when they are rejected, when they are nervous, when they're anxious, when they're feeling down, if they are self-soothing by scrolling, this can lead to some really problematic habits and behaviours. I mean, that just goes across the board for everyone, doesn't it? But yes, of course, absolutely for kids, because I guess for a lot of us as adults, we had that space. 15, 20 years ago, where we didn't have the option to forever have a gateway in our hands. So I guess it's so interesting to reflect on that. And I think boredom's a big one. It's important to let your kids be bored. So important. And it's important not only for their physical health and mental well-being, but for young people, I think it's when they develop their sense of identity. Like, do you really know who you are if you are constantly comparing your, we call it compare and despair, if you are constantly comparing your body shape and your relationships and what you do in your spare time with the A-roll edited highlight reel that's shared on social media? And so this can be really important, I think, for our young people to develop that sense of who they are. And it's also when they're creative. Um, I don't know about you, Kylie, but I never have a genius idea when I'm in my inbox or in an Excel spreadsheet. I certainly do when I'm at the beach, going for a run, having a swim. And it's that daydreaming mode. Neuroscientists call it the mind wandering mode or the default mode of thinking. Now, very few of us ever have time to have to be idle with our thoughts because we are constantly picking up our screen. And if it's with a phone, it's so frictionless. Like I unlock it by just holding it near my face or into yeah, a there's very little resistance. Isn't there? Mm. I love those um, suggestions that you shared with us 
the boundaries and boredom and also basic needs. When it comes to boundaries as well, I would just love to ask your opinion on this. What about having access to your preteen or teenager's phone? Like when you were saying then like not taking it to the bedroom and blah, 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 all those things. I also thought, oh, what about, you know, mum and dad or mum and whoever or dad and whoever have the right to pick up your phone and check in what you're doing at any time? Like is that crossing the line or is that part of having you know that healthy boundary fabulous question and this is one I know so many parents grapple with with young so I often say before 16 years if your child has access to a smartphone you need to be doing I call them a screen audit or a tech audit with your young person do not snoop in their device when they're in the bathroom, when they leave their digital appendage at home one day, um, because chances are they'll have an app. A lot of them have got these secret spyware apps now. When an incorrect passcode or facial recognition attempt is made, the device uses the forward-facing camera and actually takes a snap. Oh, my goodness. Pops it in a secret vault <gasps> and your child will actually know. So chances are there could be a oh, whole I'm lot so of photos ignorant of to this stuff. your <laughs> screwed up face. And the other thing is we want to... Um, Again, we want our kids as that pilot of the plane, we want to have these ongoing conversations with them about what they're posting online. Now, I'm the first to admit your young person probably won't want or like doing screen audits with you. But I often say to parents, say to them, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to hide. And doing an audit with them will help you to check through their DMs so you can see who they're responding to. Um, you can talk about, you know, maybe an image that they have posted that perhaps wasn't particularly appropriate. So you can have these ongoing teachable moments. We often throw kids into social media and expect that they'll know how to swim, just like we wouldn't do that with kids in the water. We've got to teach them how to swim and having these ongoing, explicit, repeated conversations about how to use social media respectfully and responsibly is so important. So doing those audits with them and doing the audit at unpredictable times. Don't say every every Sunday at three o'clock we're going to go through your phone because not only do they have spyware apps, they've now got Vault apps. So all of your inappropriate photos, contacts, messages, you can now whack into a little app. They often look like a calculator app. So parents are often oblivious to the fact that they are a vault. So that when mum or dad do the audit, I can show them the rainbows, cupcakes and unicorn photos and all the good stuff is buried away in a secret app. So doing this audit at unpredictable times and doing it with them is really important. You will get to a point, though, where you won't want to see what is on your young person's device, but hopefully by then they've got the skills and the competencies to make better decisions. And when you're having those explicit conversations with them, you know, those really clear conversations on auditing and everything like that, how explicit do you go in terms of explaining to them why it's so important that you're doing it because, you know, there's that fine line between not wanting to terrify them of people that have um, scary ulterior motives but also that level of like you need them to understand you can't trust everyone is who they say they are. Yes, so I think being really clear with them and explaining why you're doing this and understand that they may not like you doing this with them but a really important skill is for them to be able to use this device in, in healthy and helpful ways. 
I agree it is a really delicate balance between telling them the terrifying stories of where it can go wrong um, because that could create unnecessary fear with them. So I think we just need to have those conversations and be constantly, this is not a one and done conversation, this is ongoing and repeated conversations. And sadly, the research tells us that despite fabulous programs that are rolled out in schools, in 87% of cyberbullying cases, young people do not go and tell a trusted adult. Why? They are petrified of digital amputation. They are worried that I'm going to have my phone confiscated, I'm going to be banned from the social media platforms, I'll have my gaming console taken away. And so we really need to build that rapport with our kids And we have to show, even if we have to fake it till we make it, show an interest in what they're doing online. You know, don't dismiss and say, well, that stupid stuff you post on TikTok or the hours that you spent playing stupid games online with your mates, because all of a sudden what you've done is create a divide and drive the behaviour underground. And that's when things can go pear-shaped as well. And also just on that, I know it's important that when kids are sharing their interests with you, that parents understand kids perceive those interests to be so integral to their identity that if you dismiss it, they feel personally dismissed yes there is such a great meme on social media and it shows I found an image of your grandma and it's a very traditional old-fashioned image that our grandmas probably would have looked like and then there's one circa 2019 and it's a a filter of somebody with the cat ears on and all the other filters (laughs) saying this was your grandma Um, and so just such a pertinent reminder just because something's new and different and this is why we're struggling as parents we've got no frame of reference We had analogue childhoods. I spent time staring at the sky, not at a screen. I spent time with people, not with pixels. But childhood and adolescence today look so very different. And our natural tendency as humans, and this has always happened in history, when anything new is introduced, we demonise it. We say it's terrible, it's toxic, it's taboo. It happened when rock and roll music was introduced. We were told, you know, young people are going to become morally corrupt. Um, when the printing press was introduced, we were told everybody would stop communicating verbally because we just have written communication. Pe- people so, tend to romanticise things in the past. Yeah, that's right. And so I think we have to be, even though it may seem foreign to us, we have to show some sort of interest and acknowledge that whilst it might be different to your childhood and adolescence, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's taboo and, and detrimental. So I think there needs to be a willingness on adult side to start to acknowledge because it's not all doom and gloom. You know, social media can be a wonderful platform for our young people to, to connect. You know, gaming can be a great tool for, for kids to develop skills and build relationships. But like anything, if it's used excessively or inappropriately, it can be detrimental. And you've spoken a little bit there about having an analogue upbringing. This is something that crosses my mind all the time, Christy, is that tug of war between wanting my kids to be resourceful and develop skills versus also this acknowledgement that they're probably not going to need to develop that skill, you know, like such as, you know, as a kid, if I'm out and about and I hurt myself, I would know that I would have to go to a neighbor's house and knock on the door and ask to use their phone and I would have to remember my home phone number versus now if my kids are out and they were to have a phone and they hurt themselves, they don't need to know my phone number. They've just got to press two buttons and they can access me. And I swing. I swing between wanting them to have those skills that are 
you know, I don't know what, what we can just refer to them as like analog type skills versus acknowledging that they live in a world where they're always going to be able to Google everything. They're always going to be able to do a quick calculation. Like, I don't know, does oh, that make I, sense what I'm saying? I hear you and I, I grapple with exactly the same thing, knowing that there's some skills that will never become redundant. Um, and so this is where I think we need to go back to what is it that we know? And this is where I draw on neuroscience and psychology. What does research tell us that kids need for optimal development? And it's I often say the basics work if you work the basics. We need to ask ourselves, are they, and this is how I say to parents, this is the, the formula I recommend to calculate screen time limits, whether you've got a 2 or 12 or an 18-year-old. The first thing is to ask, are they getting enough sleep? Are they getting enough physical movement? Um, are they building good quality relationships? Are they getting enough play? Um, are they eating good quality foods? Are they hearing and using lots of language, so reading and, and talking and speaking and listening? And having are they having the opportunity to develop those prefrontal cortex skills, so managing their impulses, um, using their working memory? Now, they're seven basic needs that research tells us unequivocally that young people need for optimal development. What I suggest is that we imagine those needs get put in a, a glass jar, and that glass jar is a 24-hour period or a week in your young person's life. If you can make sure over the course of a day or a week that those seven basic needs go in the jar, then imagine those needs are spherical, like little balls, you know, the polystyrene balls we used to use for um, projects that we did for, for the solar system. I was just going to say the old solar systems, yeah. Yes. So they're proportionately sized. So we know that young people need quite a lot of sleep. So that goes a, a quite a large size ball. Then we know most young people um, from primary school to high school need at least one hour of physical, moderate to vigorous physical activity a day. So that's a decent sized ball. What we've then got, once those seven balls go in that glass jar, what happens is there's white space around those basic needs. That white space can be filled up with tech time without us having to have all of this moral panic and fear-mongering that technology is ruining childhood and adolescence because their basic physical and psychological needs have been met. But the problem is at the moment is if we empty that glass jar, what's filling the glass jar first for many kids and adolescents is screen time and all of a sudden, some of those basic needs are not being able to get in the jar. We've got issues with kids not getting enough physical activity. We've got issues with kids not getting enough sleep. Um, kids who are entering primary school with delayed language skills because they're, they're being dumped in the digital stream. So again, we've just got to come back to what is it the kids need and making sure that technology doesn't supersede those basic needs. Mm, I think that's a really, really helpful visual there because if we've got technology taking up all of the space, it really is, it's bottlenecking, it's stopping that flow of everything else. So just the balance is so important to be mindful of. And, you know, when it comes to balance for a primary school aged child, you know, perhaps from grade excuse me, my voice is going from grade one to grade three or four, how much time do you think would the average child in that age group be spending on screens or with technology? So this may horrify you. This was done pre-pandemic um, and it was an Australian study and they analysed, they did it actually from preschool to secondary school. So what they found was that the average Australian primary school child is spending 32 hours per week on digital devices. It's like a full-time job. 
outside of the school day. How? 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 Before school, after school, on weekends, okay. it's cumulative. Okay. Um, for us screenagers, it's 44 hours a week. Nearly two full days of their week is tethered to technology. Wow. For preschoolers, it was 26 hours a week. This is a huge, I call it the displacement effect. And so we have to be really mindful. It's not to say that technology is detrimental, but it's that opportunity cost. For all of those hours spent with digital devices, it's time not spent hanging off a tree upside down, wrestling with your brother or your sister, chatting with your your girlfriends face to face. And so it's that real opportunity cost that is so problematic. Yeah, when you speak about it in that way, that displacement, because if a child's spending, you know, 40 hours or whatever on screens and then they're also sleeping and they're also going to school, there's just literally not enough time in the day then to have those other basic needs met to their, I guess, full potential. That's right. And the big thing at the moment, we are seeing a lot of misinformation about social media and smartphones causing poor mental health outcomes in young people. And the research shows this that yes, there is a correlation. So yes, there but is correlation a correlation isn't always causation, is it? No. And we've been really quick to point the finger and say it's smartphones and social media, they're ruining adolescence. What we don't know is yet which way the directional arrow points. Is it that young people with existing mental health issues or possible mental health issues gravitate towards social media and the online world as a coping mechanism, as a form of escapism? Or is it the other way around where social media and phones and technology are actually exacerbating or even instigating mental health outcomes? And we really, the research really doesn't have a clear picture yet. What we do know is that it's the displacement of their basic needs. So I tend to think it might be that that social media and phones are having a negative effect, but not in the direct causal way we think. I think the reason we're seeing poor mental health outcomes in young people is because sleep is being impacted, real connection, like interpersonal connections and relationships with real people in real time, and inadequate amounts of physical movement. When we move, we make a whole lot of neurochemicals like serotonin and dopamine and endocannabinoids. These all make us feel good. Our kids tend to be more sedentary than they have ever been. And so these cumulative things really can have a negative impact on on their well-being overall. Yeah, I think that's so interesting and I'm so glad you brought that up because it's very easy to just assume that it is social media causing kids, I mean people, but specifically kids to have a poor mental health um, experience. But I guess when you really do pull the veil back a little bit and go, well, maybe it's not just because of the images and the notifications and the comparison, you know, maybe it is because they're just not having enough of those basic needs met. So again, back to the parents really being the pilot. Yes, so important. And it's not to say, it's, it's not to sort of give our tech companies to take them off the hook. We know one of the things as humans, we have something called a negativity bias. So our brain gravitates towards negativity. Now, the way the Google recommendation algorithm works is that if you start clicking on social media posts, even if you don't like them, but maybe you expand the comment, you're sending very powerful triggers to these platforms that you're interested in this content. 
And so you will start getting fed more and more of this content that might be detrimental to your your mental health. So we're really still not quite sure of, of how this works. But again, I think if we can put, you know, make sure I call them our biological buffers. If we can make sure that, that they're getting enough sleep, they're physically active and they are connecting, they are our most basic biological buffers that will help um, counteract some potential mental health outcomes, coupled with teaching our kids, you know, talking to them about these negativity biases and how the, the recommendation algorithm works so they can be more empowered to make considered choices around social media. Yeah, and it's so important as parents, we ourselves understand oh. how those recommendation um how that how that works and you know a podcast series I listened to was called I think the rabbit hole Mm -hmm. and it was a New York Times one and it was specifically speaking about how people become radicalized yes through that recommendation algorithm and for me that was super eye-opening because you always think oh I could never become radicalized in anything but then all of a sudden you're hearing from people that who who have had that experience and it's from watching one YouTube video that then the internet suggested another YouTube video, then another one, then another one. And it's like all of these little hands pushing them down this pathway. And so just for me to understand that is so helpful then I guess in being able to communicate that with my kids too. Yes. And if I may share a really powerful story, this happened um, in Sydney quite recently, where some girls on a social media platform started, there was one what we call micro-influencer. So she had a a fairly significant, not hugely substantial, but a, a significant following with her peer group. And she had been given, she had garnered some information about, um, getting ADD medication. She had found out that if she um, took the ADD medication that she'd been prescribed, that one of the known side effects was that it was an appetite suppressant. This girl started sharing this information on several social media platforms and because other girls signaled an interest that they were interested in in what she was sharing. This information um, was shared and disseminated in a really rapid and really dangerous way. This group of micro-influencers started sharing how you needed to ace uh, the, the, the psychometric test that you would do with a psychologist to prove that you had ADA, ADD so you could be given the relevant medication and that this would be an appetite suppressant and would have the desired effects that these young people would craving and so just so problematic um, because of that that recommendation algorithm and how we can be really and especially impressionable young people led down a very dangerous path by what they're consuming online. Mm. How important is it Christy that as parents we're modelling boundaries because it's one thing to say to our kids all right Johnny you're not taking your phone to your bedroom as we ourselves plug our phone in next to our bed so important but so hard to do so hard (laughs) it really is and I grapple with this um so what I I go back to science so what we know is the brain has something called mirror neurons mirror neurons mean we are biologically wired to imitate and copy it happens from birth when you're around a newborn baby do it when it's on the mother's shoulder um 
you may get arrested, poke your tongue out at a newborn baby. They will poke it back at you. And it's not the rooting reflex. We are biologically wired to copy. Oh, it's so, the same even now as an adult when we're in conversation, you know, I'll, I'll notice if I'm in a great conversation and someone I'm speaking to crosses their legs and leans back, yes. I'm inclined to cross my legs and lean back. Or if, you're, if I'm on a date and the guy leans forward, I'll lean forward. Like so it's just true. a human thing. It is. And our kids are seeing this. Um, and if I may, this is quite a powerful story. A mum shared it with me with permission to share it at a seminar. And she said her daughter had come home from school one day and she asked her mum, she said, mummy, how much do you make an hour? And her mum said, look, I earn a salary. I'll do some calculations. She tucked her daughter into bed last that, that night and she said to her, sweetie, this is how much I did my calculations. This is what I earn per hour. Why do you ask? And her daughter turns and says to her mum, because I'd like to buy an hour of your time oh, without stop. your phone. I share this in corporate presentations. I share this with parent audiences. We never get this time back. And so, yes, it is so hard to resist the urge of, of notifications or knowing that your inbox is going to need to be triaged after a couple of hours. But I think we have to ask ourselves, what's the opportunity cost? If we don't control technology, if it controls us, I often say we are slave to the screen, we are missing those micro moments of connection with our kids. And so what I encourage people to do is to come up with your own, I call them your digital guardrails. Come up with the personal boundaries saying, look, I'm going to have my phone or this is when I'm going to turn off my laptop, um, putting in place some strategies and parameters so that we don't feel like we're constantly tethered to technology. I have a friend who, who works in palliative care and she's treating more and more people in their 50s, sadly, and the, the, the greatest regret of the dying in this age cohort is that they wish they didn't spend as much time with their digital devices. You know, these devices are wonderful. It's not an anti-tech message, but if we don't control them, if they control us, they will rob us of our two most important resources we have as humans, our time and our attention. So to answer your question, we do have to be good role models. It's just not easy to do. Um, But coming up, you know, are you going to have a landing zone in your house where all the devices go at a set time? Um, Are you going to make sure that meal areas are a tech-free area? Try to come up with those digital parameters or or digital, I call it a digital wellbeing plan as a family so that you can try to stick to it as best you can. Yeah, and I love that. And I think that it's really important what you just mentioned there about sharing this information is not because it's through an anti-tech lens it's through an awareness an awareness lens and I remember I had a real moment of awareness when the boys were about three years old and I realized I was spending way too much time on my phone and I was thinking about modeling that to them and for me it was like oh my gosh they're three they're going to be going to school soon and weekends are about to become so much more precious and I made a decision that when I have my kids on the weekends, I'm going to remove social media apps from my phone because I didn't want to be looking at my phone as much as I was. And that's been a really, really helpful guardrail, as you would call it. And one of the reasons that felt so important to me, and when it's important and when you have a why, it's easy to do it. Like it's easier to do it. It doesn't mean that I don't still be like, oh, I wish I could just dip into social media now, but it's easier when you have a strong why. And my why was that just thinking about the boys going to school, 
Mm. And weekends becoming more precious, but also the fact that eventually they would have their own devices and they would also have input from other people through those devices. And I had a bit of a, a, you know, I I don't know, a bit of a moment where I was imagining them coming to me as preteens and saying, mum, so-and-so was mean to me online Mm. or me discovering that they'd been bullied and just going, if I say to them, don't worry about it, that's just online and we live in the real world, that's not going to hold much weight if they see their mum is always living online. Like I need to really walk the walk of going, no, no, this is the real world. Um, So that's why it was really important to me and that's one of my guardrails. And I just wanted to share in case that's helpful for any parents. Um, I don't do it to 100% perfection these days now that the kids are a bit older and they have time with their dad and things like that. But it was really, really helpful for me to have that guardrail. Yeah, and I think guardrails will stick, as you said, when you hook them to a bigger purpose, when you look at what's driving this. You know, I, I don't want to get to the end of my life and think I well, wish I'd spent less time with my phone or in my yeah. inbox. Um, we really just have to put parameters in place so that we're not that slave to the screen. Um, you know, technology should be our servant, not our master. And I think mm. for many of us, if we really took a critical look, we are using it so that it is our master. Yeah, you have given so much important food for thought throughout this conversation. Where can our listeners connect with you more? Because I feel like they're going to want more from you. So I'm at drchristygoodwin.com and I am ironically on all of the social, well, on, on many of the social media platforms. 24-7. No, definitely not. Um, trying to share digestible and practical information because I know that's where we tend to to congregate. So um, I'm on Instagram, um, LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Amazing. I will put all of your um, handles and your website link in our show notes too just to make it really easy for our listeners. Thank but you. I've also got, I was just thinking something that might help your listeners. We've got a um, free digital wellbeing checklist. So it's a checklist that you can print off and put on your fridge as a family and start to look at some of the digital wellbeing strategies that you could put in place for everybody. So I'll share a link to that if that's helpful as well. That would be brilliant. I'll put that in the show notes and I'm going to print one out and put it on my fridge too. (laughs) So I'm really, really grateful for the work that you're doing in this space and for your time today. And yeah, as I said, so much wonderful food for thought for myself and also for our listeners. So a huge, huge thank you. My pleasure. Great to chat, Kylie. Thanks for joining me and listening to this week's episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed this content and are looking to dive deeper into the support that the Kind Parenting Company offers parents and caregivers, you will love the range of programs we have available. The range includes online programs for supporting baby and toddler sleep, most suitable for babies aged 0 to 24 months, and also Toddler Life, which is a guide for those raising children aged 2 to 4 years. Each program comes with access to video and audio files, as well as the opportunity to join the community forums. Podcast listeners receive 20% off all programs. Simply visit the Kind Parenting Company website and use the code KPCPODCAST20, that's KPCPODCAST20, at checkout. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 